Good afternoon and welcome to the LOAS webinar. Today is September 24, 2018, and we're here to present practical defenses of occupational exposure claims in New Jersey. My name is Karen Vincent. I'm, an, I'm a senior attorney at LOAS Law Firm. I practice New Jersey Defense Workers' Compensation Claims. I've been practicing for 18 years. With me today is Chris Diaz. Hi, Karen. My name is Chris Diaz. Um, I am also a uh, senior uh, workers' compensation attorney at LOAS. I've been practicing workers' compensation exclusively for 20 years, and it's great to be here with you today. Well, thank you for joining us. Today, like I said, we're going to be covering defenses of occupational exposure claims. Now, if you've been following the webinar series throughout the year, we began with defenses, and then we moved on to benefits. Now we're in the section that we call trial and advanced concepts. Uh, today, occupational injuries, under section 31 of the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Statute, it holds that occupational injuries are compensable if they arise out of and in the course of employment and were caused by a condition characteristic of or peculiar to the employment. Now, it is also important to note that the statute does ex exclude natural aging process. So as we get older, that's not really part of an occupational exposure claim. Bummer. So first, we're going to look at what does the statute mean by peculiar to. Peculiar to, the petitioner must show an objective medical or scientific basis establishing a causal link. Now, this is shown by a preponderance of the evidence. So first, what we need to look at is that it is the petitioner's burden of proof. They have to show this at a level of preponderance of the evidence. That is a lower uh, burden of proof. Um, but again, there has to be some sort of objective and scientific basis. It's not a subjective complaint. Now, Chris, do you want to look at not peculiar? Yep. Uh, so some of the conditions that are not peculiar uh, are, say, PST, uh, PTSD, uh, not peculiar. You see this with police and first responders. Um, stress is not peculiar. Uh, it's not peculiar to any job. We're all stressed in our jobs. Um, interestingly, sitting is not uh, peculiar to any job. I actually had a cardiac case many years ago that actually went to the appellate division, Feltman versus transistor devices. And in that instance, we had a petitioner who um, was a self-professed couch potato. He did nothing other than go to work, come home, and watch movies. And uh, ultimately, he died of a heart attack. And he was a heart attack waiting to happen. And uh, basically, most of his life was just sitting. And unfortunately, sitting uh, does not give rise to a compensable occupational claim. So it was not peculiar. So he was sitting inside and outside of his job, basically. Pretty much. Now, when do we see these occupational claims filed? A lot of the claims we see are plant closures. I actually ha have handled in the past couple of years where we were the exclusive attorney for a plant closing. You have uh, the plant closes down, petitioner's attorneys get in touch with some of these employees, and miraculously they have some occupational exposure, inhaling fumes, uh, dust, chemicals. And so you, what happens is you get 60 to hundreds of claim petitions filed all at once. So that is a big time when you would, you would see a lot of these occupational exposure claims filed. Also, if, if a petitioner is laid off, you'll find that they worked at some sort of factory for the course of 20 years. So there might be multiple insurance companies that provided policies during that time period. Retirement, 
is another uh, period in a petitioner's life where they're going to look. So really what you're seeing is that the petitioner is no longer working for that employer. That's usually what's key. So what they do is they file the claim and they cite through their last date of employment. Right. Uh, it's, it's very rare that you're going to see an occupational claim where the petitioner is still working there because in, in, that, in that mindset, the exposure is still ongoing. Right. You see those plant closings where you get three, four hundred claims all at one time. Now, the great thing about that is we can lump all the, the if it's a plant closing we, and we're designated the counsel for that, we can handle all of the claims. We do, we do the discovery under all of them, and we, we can actually go in and do a global settlement in one day where I actually worked out with one of the judges that we did 40 Section 20 settlements. Now, you're going to hear us say this uh, repeatedly throughout this webinar, but a lot of these cases we like to set up a Section 20 settlement, and what that is is a full and final settlement with a dismissal with prejudice. So essentially, here, take this money. You can never come back for any medical permanency or anything regarding this exposure that you've alleged. Uh, the last time we also see it is uh, they added on in a social security disability application right. uh, that kind of uh, gives a little more credibility to their application in their eyes. So they, they like to add that on. Uh, so uh, when, we're, when we're looking to see whether an occupational claim has been filed and we received the claim petition, it's actually Pretty easy. The uh, division makes it simple for us. Uh, there is a box that gets checked off. Occupational disease, yes or no. Uh, if it's an occupational disease, give us the periods of exposure. And like you just said, um, when you get these retirement claims or you get these plant closing claims, they'll often begin from the, uh, the date that the petitioner began uh, employment, clear through to the last date that the plant closed. Um, and that's their period of exposure wherein they're claiming their disability. It could be, like you said, exposure to pulmonary irritants, exposure to chemicals, um, you know, lifting, bending. Uh, they throw in the kitchen sink generally when you see these. Uh, but, uh, but right there on the petition is uh, where we're able to tell whether something is an occupational claim or not. Correct. And, and I think you'll agree <coughs> that when you see the extent of the injury, like you said, they throw mm -hmm. in the entire body and you'll see orthopedic, neurologic, sure. neuropsychiatric, psychiatric, uh, they're going to allege every possible right. injury that they can to cover themselves. Now, with the injury types, we do have uh, mental, physical, idiopathic, chemical exposure, assaults. Then you have the occupational and repetitive trauma. And the occupational that we've been talking about is usually occupational exposure, inhalation, pulmonary. You do have another occupational type, which is a repetitive trauma. So one of the classic types that we give as an example is a blackjack dealer. All day, every day, shuffling cards. After a couple of years, he gets bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome. So the repetitive trauma claims are normally an orthopedic claim in nature, where an occupational exposure claim is more inhalation, dust, fumes. We've had a couple of asbestos claims, uh, chemical irritants. We have a couple where it's uh, people using paint thinners and, and those types of chemicals. So when we're defending occupational injuries, what we look at is the statute of limitations, notice giving to the employer that there is an occupational trauma that the petitioner suffered, uh, who's last in exposure, and that specifically with the bond doctrine, and then we look at medical evidence and causal relationship. So first, 
the statute of limitations. This is under NJSA 34-15-34, and it states within two years of when the employer knew the nature of the disability and its relation to the employment, and I, I, it's employee, not employer, when the employee knew. So basically we look at when did they know or should have known. So what we look at, we like to look at what we call the date of manifestation. When is the first time the petitioner went to a doctor? It also depends on what kind of injuries they're alleging. If they're alleging, or if they're alleging, for example, uh, inhalation and pulmonary, and they go to a doctor seven years ago, and they're talking about their job in the report that they're inhaling fumes and dusts, we're going to try to argue that the statute of limitations has run because seven years ago when they went to that doctor, they were already expressing their work conditions. They should have known it was related to work. We also look through the medical records to see did the doctor actually put in his opinion that this is related to the petitioner's employment and their job duties. Uh, within two years of the date, the employer voluntarily paid compensation. Now, this one's not as, as uh, well used only because, in, generally speaking, we deny occupational exposure right. claims, and usually the employers deny them as well. Mm -hmm. If for some reason they did send the petitioner to a doctor and that was an authorized uh, paid visit by the employer, the two years would extend from the date of that mm -hmm. because it is considered a benefit to the petitioner. And lastly, within two years of an award of compensation. So if there was a prior award for this exposure and they received uh, benefits and monies from that, it would be two years from that date. Next we have notice. Notice, which um, is essentially a, a defense that is almost a non-defense, but NJSA 3415-33 says that the notice has to be given within 90 days. Um, as you just said before, it's when the petitioner knew or should have known. Uh, 90 days uh, is not something, unfortunately, that is held to uh, very steadfastly by the court. Case law really gives the petitioner an out on that. Um, it wasn't, wasn't uh, um, reported in 90 days. Was it reported to the right person? Well, you know, normally I give my notice if something happens to... Um, Joe, and Joe may not really be the supervisor, he just may be somebody who um, takes down information when somebody gets injured on the job, uh, but is not the person who you should have technically reported it to. Well, but I did, uh, so that should count within my 90 days. Or, uh, you know, hey, I didn't know I was injured. I didn't really understand what was happening to me until well, be happening to me until well beyond the 90 days. Essentially, it's a defense that's really not a defense that's very helpful to us. And I think we also see, like uh, we discussed with the plant closing, there's no one to give the notice to. Correct. They're not there anymore. The company doesn't exist. Right. So uh, obviously they're, they can't satisfy the requirement and the judge is not going to hold them to that if there's no one to actually give the notice to. Right. Next we have last exposure, the bond decision. And the bond case is a very big case that all respondents look at petitioner's attorneys look at when they're looking at occupational exposure claims. Essentially what that means is the last employer on the risk gets, it becomes the target of the claim. So essentially you, you know, a lot of these cases we have where the petitioner was working for this factory 20 some odd years, it could have been their whole career. Right. And during those years, the employers had several different insurance ca carriers or the petitioner was uh, working in a union. So they have the same job, but they worked for 30 years right. and they have 30 different companies that they're listing off with construction companies and so forth. So the thought process is that the last employer 
on the risk is the one that's held uh, mostly responsible because that's what caused them to ultimately leave the employment uh, or, or that they left due to the injury or caused them to retire. Now, one of the things we look at, and, and this is why discovery is so heavily relied upon, it's the first thing we do from the beginning of getting these claims, is get as much as discovery as possible. Because, again, what we said earlier is we look at the date of manifestation. So we want to pull all of petitioner's medical records because if there's an earlier date that we can point that the petitioner began to treat, that's going to shift the focus to an earlier employer or an right. earlier insurance carrier. Get the onus off of us. And this is also still uh, you know, important to note that the petitioner still has to show actual causation or actual contribution by that employer. Right. And we've had situations where what if uh, the petitioner was with one company for 27 years and then the last company a month and a half. Sure. Sometimes we then get expert reports that say that month and a half didn't do anything or they weren't actually even in that part of the factory to have that inhalation. It was their other employers. So again, discovery becomes a really big thing that we're going to discuss in a little bit as well in helping us defend these claims. Right. So um, also, it's what's really important is medical diagnosis and causal relation. Uh, we need to determine that. And the first step to that is obtaining an IME that's going to comment on causal relationship. And that's key to a successful defense. It sort of dovetails from what you were just talking about. It's having a doctor who is competent to make the diagnosis or to give you an opinion with respect to whether or not the petitioner's uh, claimed condition is causally related to his work environment, uh, what he alleges uh, to have been exposed to. Um, also, as you were just saying before, it's key to obtain a complete medical history from the petitioner because, as you said, uh, is this a pre-existing condition? Is this something that started to manifest uh, under a different carrier, perhaps with a different employer? Um, all of those will go towards our defense. And the purpose is to get any information that shows that that uh, condition was pre-existing so that we can kind of say, tag, you're it, it's not us. Absolutely. And again, this also leads us then to that end game of, okay, we'll give you a little bit on a Section 20, right. a nominal amount. Uh, towards a Section 20, and a lot of these carriers will all put in a little bit. And when you add it all up, petitioner can get a sizable award, and right. everybody gets dismissed with prejudice. Uh, the other thing we look at is uh, whether it's not science, um, synergistic exposure. What if you have a 1% uh, particle that caused it, but the petitioner is a heavy smoker? Right. And, it, you know, they've been treating for COPD for their, in their private uh, under their private health their whole lives right. for that. Uh, you have the single molecule theory, which is one molecule of a toxin caused this cancer that the petitioner now has. When you have all their personal and outside factors that really were main contributors. Net opinions, uh, this is a big one. You have doctors that may give an opinion based upon petitioner's subjective complaints. And it's key that we're looking at whether there's actual accurate and objective uh, causation that's provided. Uh, the standard causation is by an appreciable degree or a degree substantially greater than de minimis. So you, they, they, they really do have that burden of showing that there is an actual relation to the employment and the exposure that they're alleging and that it's different than their, their, their home life and their outside exposures. Right, and that goes towards how we defend these cases. I mean, it's sort of a one-two punch, right? It's the facts and then it's the law. 
um, with respect to the facts, discovery, discovery, discovery. We have to determine whether or not the petitioner is actually doing the kind of job for a living that he's alleging, as you said before. Is he working in a totally different part of the factory where he wouldn't be exposed to the chemical or pollutants uh, that he's alleging in the claim petition? Um, is his um, allegation such that it, it does not uh, rise to the peculiar standards that we were talking about earlier? And then it's the law. You know, does, uh, do we meet the standard? Um, is the petitioner's uh, disability more than just de minimis, as we were talking about earlier? And um, you know, when we shape those two uh, areas together, that's how we build our defense. And when you're looking at facts of exposure, these were the type of tests and facts that you're looking at. Is that correct? Right. Um, so, you know, we look to OSHA. Um, we get those reports, um, ergonomic studies, air quality testing, um, reports, noise studies, any awards or certifications uh, that we can utilize to determine whether or not that exposure actually even existed. Okay. So in talking about discovery uh, for petitioner's attorney and the petitioner, what we do for them when we get these claims is immediately we send them a request for medical inf information. We want petitioner's entire medical file. Because in, it's an exposure claim, we're looking at as far back as we can go, their private health doctors, any urgent care visits, hospital visits, because we want to look at anything and everything to see if there was a prior exposure or prior injury that could have led to petitioner's current condition. It also helps us in, in, in knowing if the statute of limitations, when it would have begun to run. Uh, we forward interrogatories, occupational exposure interrogatories for the petitioner to complete. And in those ROGs, it includes where have you worked your whole life, uh, you know, what, what medical, that usually within there, they'll list off their private health doctors, every medical physician they've seen over the past of 10, 15 years. Uh, we send them HIPAA authorization so that we can obtain medical records on their behalf. We also ask the employer to send the personnel file. We want to see what they were hired for. We want to see where they were working. Did they require a CDL license? Were they wearing um, a lot of things we look at safety? Uh, were they wearing um, hazmat suits, gloves, goggles? What, what exactly, we want to know the entire environment. We also want to know their employment history. Were they uh, a, a worker that was there every day? Were they getting written up? Were they, you know, because there's always an issue as to whether this is a retaliatory claim, sure. claim especially if they're no longer working there. We look at their social security earnings because that'll give us uh, the prior employers as well. Right. So we look at where they were working. We also will utilize cross-examination of the petitioner. We'll put the petitioner on the stand under oath. That way we can really question him or her on what their medical background is. Uh, and last, the health records from the employer. Sometimes the employers have them undergo medical testing right. or they've sent them because there were prior accidents that they have records on and we obviously uh, request those from the employer. In some cases, you have in-house clinics um, at certain uh, factories or uh, employers, and those records can be invaluable because it'll show you, especially if the petitioner's a longtime employee, um, over the course of uh, X number of years, how many times uh, he has been evaluated by the in-house clinic and whether or not this is something that um, never showed up as a complaint before, and now all of a sudden, at uh, time of plant closing or at the end of their career, um, well, now we have a pulmonary problem or now right. we have a, 
cardiac issue. 25 so. years of never coughing or sneezing once, and now they can't get through a sentence exactly. without coughing. Exactly. Uh, we have IMEs. Right. As we were saying before, selection of an IME doctor, right? You've got a pulmonary claim. You do not want uh, an orthopedist uh, evaluating <laughs> your petitioner for uh, a, uh, a pulmonary claim, right? Uh, if it's a neurologic claim, same thing. You don't want to send him to a pulmonologist. You want to make sure that the doctor is the correct doctor so that you get the correct diagnosis. Um, and an IME cover letter is essential. Uh, having all the information regarding the case, regarding the petitioner's background, that spells that out for the doctor, gives them a quick reference, is uh, really important. And you know, we do that for our clients. We offer that. Uh, it's something that they should really take advantage of because uh, as we have the file available to us, all the information, all the discovery, and we have a relationship with the doctors, we can put together something that uh, really gives the doctor a, a quick overview of the essential parts of the case so that they're sure to write a great report. And it's good to a tool to have too because when we're doing that cover letter, it ensures that we have all the discovery we needed right. in preparation as, of this exam because obviously we want the doctor to review all the discovery and all the, you know, even if it's a background of the factory and, and right. a list of chemicals that the petitioner was exposed to. And I think also uh, in furthering the selection of the IME doctor, these are not the same doctors that we use for typical specific traumas. Right. Um, sometimes our recommendation is to go out and get an actual expert. When you have an asbestos claim, you may not just want to get a regular pulmonary. You're looking for an actual expert on asbestos who can look at the records, look at uh, the, the building reports, look at the period of time that the petition was there and really come down to a conclusion as to whether it, his employment and actually can pinpoint when the exposure would have started based upon the initial symptoms. Right. So in those cases, sometimes the symptoms occurred during someone else's employment, but you're looking back to the exposure from 10 to 15 years earlier. Sure. So really, even though we can say that to the judge all we want, we really want that expert doctor to say so. Right. So uh, we also uh, utilize cross-examination of the petitioner's IME. Um, we uh, are prepped in advance with our expert to make sure that our expert is able to articulate uh, their findings and they're able to uh, effectively challenge the findings of our uh, adversary's expert as well. Um, we focus on objective scientific evidence, not the non-science that we were talking about earlier, such as synergistic one molecule and net opinions. We want to be able to show the court that there is real um, objective scientific evidence that proves our case. Uh, cross, we cross on uh, subjectivity of exposures. Uh, we cross on existing medical and scientific and epi epidemiological studies, say that five times twice, regarding causation, uh, prevailing medical standards as well. So uh, we try to make sure that our petitioner's IMEs, um, that the petitioner's IME is effectively crossed by our own expert. So what do we do with all this discovery? We either go to trial or we go to settlement. So after all this discovery is reached and we have the IMEs, we've spoken to the petitioner, we've put on this case, we talk to petitioner's attorney. Are we doing a trial to judgment? Are we compromising with the settlement? Dismissal. Now obviously dismissal is, as a respondent's firm, dismissal is the key. Right. That's our target. Right. Um, uh, you know, if we're able to show that the exposure was uh, non-existent, sure. uh, we're going to go straight for the dismissal. 
uh, our second level would be a Section 20 settlement. Uh, I don't think I've had any cases on an occupational exposure where I paid under a Section 22 with a reopener, right? Right. We go straight to the Section 20, and that, again, is a full and final settlement with dismissal, which is why it's key that we have to uh, move forward on our position that we look at, well, there were other uh, carriers involved, and really the treatment predisposed us, and we only had three weeks of exposure, and this guy had 18 years of exposure, and we're gonna point to everybody and, and hopefully lead us down the road of a Section 20. Right. And lastly, then, if we're unable to do that, we go to trial to judgment. We, we, we complete it, we put on our doctors, and at the end, the judge makes a determination, oh, and you know, ideally, if there's multiple respondents involved, the judge can then, uh, make a decision as to uh, the exposure and, and liability at that point. Right. And those are actually pretty rare because I, I do find that personally a lot of the cases I see, especially when there's multiple respondents, the petitioner really just, the end game is the dollar figure at the end. So when a uh, petitioner's attorney brings in 27 respondents, it's because they know if everybody puts in $2,500, petitioner can make a really large settlement globally. Uh, uh, so... That's usually what they're looking right. for. They're no longer working there anymore. So, right. It's in the petitioner's interest to try to not move these to trial. Uh, it's going to cost them more to do that. Uh, they're going to bring in, as you said, a lot of respondents, hopefully get a little bit from everybody, and then walk away with their retirement fund. Correct. Right. And that concludes uh, defending occupational exposure claims. Next month, we're going to cover effective use of IMEs. That will be on October 22, 2018. Uh, as a reminder, we have the New York webinars on the third Monday of every month, and New Jersey is the fourth Monday of the month. So we'll see you on October 22nd when we'll cover the use of IMEs. Thank you so much, and have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you.